Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Well, welcome to another edition of Inside Curling. Uh, what a week it was, uh, and what a week it's going to be. Uh, back again, of course, are our two Hall of Famers, Kevin Martin and Warren Hanson. Kevin, you were down in MIDI all week, and uh, boy, it was quick to get back, Kevin, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I have to get back. Got to get to Calgary for the Grand Slam and Chestermere right away. Uh, how many flights from MIDI to get back? Oh, it was really easy. Uh, Minneapolis to uh, Chicago, Chicago to Toronto. And in Toronto to Edmonton. So that 12 hours and 11 minutes. Okay, for, which is supposed to be three hours only. Uh, anyway, it's good, good to have you back in the seat. Warren, you're lucky. Uh, throw another log in the fire here. It's minus seven in Alberta, and uh, you're still out in BC. Uh, and what a great week it was, uh, Warren, for curling. Yes, there certainly was a lot going on, and there'll be a lot going on in the weeks ahead. So it's going to be a very busy year. Fellas, I love surprises. And we sure had a couple of those this week, and we got to talk about those right now. Last Rock, eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. it's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Line's good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here, guys. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Okay, so uh, time for another show. As I said, there's a bunch of surprises. We want to thank our sponsors, uh, Goldline, Sports Interaction, Coyote Tractor, Nestle Boost, and Meridian Manufacturing. What's on the show today? Uh, in the first segment, what's happening around the curling world? The Canadian pre-trials were held this past week. Boy, oh boy, not what it was supposed to be, uh, the results, or what people predicted. What was predictable was the event in Lacombe, the America's Challenge uh, is wrapped up. We'll talk about that. The World Wheelchair Curling Championship was held in Beijing. Let's look at those results. And Kev, you were down in Mini, like we mentioned, for the U.S. Mixed Doubles Olympic Trials. And then this week, uh, the Boost National is underway in Chestermere, Alberta. Uh, and we're going to see what's going on down there. And the boys will have their predictions. Hot Rock Topics. Uh, we love that. We asked Tracy Fleury last week if there was a rule she would like to change. Uh, she said it was the burnt stone rule. We're going to chat about that. Also, we get into our mailbag, which we love. We get uh, lots of emails from you people in our Facebook group. And Warren's pulled one of those out that we want to talk about. Story time. Anytime you hear the name Donnie Walchuk, tune in, right? <laughs> How many experiences, Kevin, have you had with that guy that are off the page? <laughs> <laughs> well, and but 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 Jimmy, how many can you actually tell? <laughs> yes. 
Well, you're going to try and tell something that happened when you guys were in Switzerland. Thanks, everyone, for listening and weighing in. You can email us, uh, insidecurling at gmail.com. So let's get her underway. What's happening around the curling world? Brought to you by Sports Interaction. Providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker. you got to be 19 or older and play responsibly. So, the Canadian Olympic pre-trials was held uh, in Liverpool, Nova Scotia. Uh, like I said, Warren, uh, lots of surprises here. Yes, there was lots going on down in Liverpool last week. And just to bring everybody up to speed, there were 14 men's teams and 14 women's teams. And they were each playing for two spots, two final spots in the Canadian curling trials. It'll happen in Saskatoon later this month. And boy, yes, there was lots going on. So, let's take a look at the women's side first. Interesting to say the least. So... When we got down to the final four teams, there was three older teams and one younger one. Krista McCarville, Jacqueline Harrison, Corinne Brown, and Sherry Anderson. In the first playoff for a spot, it was between McCarville and Harrison. And Harrison, a team that we haven't heard much of in the past, it's been around for quite a while. Quite an interesting game in the fact that Harrison took a five-ender. I think it was the second or third end. Went up five to one. But in the end, McCarville struggled back, kept chipping at it, and she finally won that first qualifying game. So Harrison dropped down into the B side, and uh, she met Corinne Brown, the younger team of the Final Four. And uh, that, again, was a, a strange game. Corinne Brown just wasn't there that day, and uh, Harrison won it quite easily. So the women's side, McCarville and Harrison, two of the older teams, but also interesting to know where those teams are sitting. Again, appreciate this as a special year with the COVID thing, but respectively, McCarville was ranked 49 and Harrison 50 on the world t- uh, ranking system. So they're way down the list. Uh, interesting, McCarville, that's a team we've talked about a lot. They've been around for quite a while. They've they've done well. They've played well in the Scotties over time, but they don't go in the Bonspiel circuit. Uh, they're somewhat of a defensive type of team. They just keep out there uh, protecting and look for an opening but they're going to be there and they're going to give uh, certainly a number of teams I think some grief in that final competition the Harrison team not so sure so on the women's side we're going to end up with the teams being Fleury, Einerson, Jones, Holman, Walker, Rock, Schneidegger, McCarville and Harrison. Over on the men's side Yes, this was, uh, again, rather interesting when we got down to the final four. Three of the older guys and one young one. So the four final teams were Jason Gunnonson, Glenn Howard, Tanner Horrigan, and Pat Simmons. In the first game, it was Horrigan against Gunnelson. Horrigan, 23 years old, great player. We're going to talk to him later. Uh, it went right down to Last Rock, and Gunnelson came up the winner. But it was a hard-fought battle in the Horrigan team. Although they didn't make that one, they played very, very well. We got into the final game with Horrigan going against Howard for the last qualifying spot. And again, that was a, a real battle. Very well played game. I think the Horrigan team all shot uh, into the 90s. And it came right down to, to the last end, last rock. And it was very well played. This young guy is uh, going to be a force to be reckoned, I think, coming forward. Uh, he beat the old veteran. Uh, interesting split in age. You had Glenn Howard, who was age 59, had first played in the Olympic trials in 1987. Uh, against Tanner Horrigan, 23, and the young guy came out the winner. So, interesting, the final field then for the men is going to be Jacobs, Gushu, Epping, Cooey, Butcher, McEwen, Dunstan, Gunnelson, and of course, uh, Horrigan. Kevin, you weren't around for all this, but uh, I'm sure you've heard something that's uh, put a bug in your ear about something. What do you think of it all? On the men's side, I think that it really is a strong field. I, I totally like the fact that Tanner got in into the uh, 
into the trials. I think that's huge um, for his growth as a player because uh, I agree with you. I think he is, he is an up-and-comer that's going to be extremely strong in the future. Uh, you know, and, 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 you know, it'd be great if they won a game or two at the trials. But the only, you know, I think this will really help him, you know, his, with his stride going forward. So, you know, good on them. Um, I certainly would have liked to see a couple of younger teams on the on the women's side get in. In my mind, you know, I always worry about the growth of curling, and, and it's great to see the young people doing well. Obviously, you know, having McCarville get in is not a surprise at all. Really, really strong, and and Jacqueline Harrison as well. They're strong also, but you know, I always uh, I've always really promoted junior curling in the youth. So it would have been nice to see a couple of young teams, but it'll be a good field. It'll be it'll be it'll be tough. I've been looking forward to Saskatoon. Warren, we've received uh, a lot of talk, a lot of uh, input from listeners about the trials and one of the one of the topics always was we could end up with a very low ranked team uh and does canada want that uh for the trials and that's what happened uh here um in harrison getting in what what do you think now warren that that actually did happen um, are, are they are they going to be able to hold their own here that remains to be seen. I'm sure if they uh, got on a roll during the trials, they can give a lot of teams uh, some grief. But in the end, I, I really wouldn't think that either one of those teams are going to be the ones that, pre- that predominantly come out at the end. Um, I, I would think, again, uh, those top four teams, Furry, Anderson, Jones, Holman, it's going to be tough to get through all of them. And I would, I would have to feel that's still where one of the winners is going to come from. Well, like Kevin said, great experience for uh, teams that otherwise wouldn't be there. Uh, Kevin Team Botcher was Canada's representative this past weekend at the America's Challenge in Lacombe. Uh, speaking of no surprises, uh, there certainly weren't any there. It involved Canada, Mexico, and Brazil. And, of course, it was to determine the second team for the men's worlds uh, from the Americas. From the event point of view, I don't think there's any surprise. The outcome was expected. Botcher, you know, didn't really have any trouble. But looking at the bigger picture of our sport right now in the world, I really think that event was important. Uh, It's important to have it. Brazil has really improved since the last time. um, And Mexico keeps improving. So I think that's really a good sign. We have 67 member nations in the World Curling Federation right now. And a whole bunch more countries want to get in. Events like this are important to showcase the growth of our sport. Now, also, it was held in Lacombe, and uh, Darren Molding makes the ice, so the ice was absolutely fantastic. The building was sold out. They had seating on the ice. They had seating upstairs. The club did very well financially, and after COVID, of course, that's a very good thing. But then also just the, the amount of push curling will get in central Alberta because of this event. It was really well covered. It was very popular, and as I say, it was sold out. So just, I think, a real positive thing. Like, the event itself was no surprise what occurred, but around it and the fringe part of it was really, really important. And I think... Uh, uh, having more and more nations involved in this type of stuff is important. Now, you know, Warren, I, I agree with you on tiering it, tiers A, B, C, D, so on. But it's really important to have all these nations be able to compete to get better. Otherwise, you know, we'll be like a lot of other sports that are only strong in certain nations. And and uh, curling has really expanded around the world in a big way in the last 10 years. And because of events like this, it continues to expand and improve. Some of our listeners may be asking, how did Mexico and Brazil end up in this, Kevin? Well, it's the America's Cup. The U.S., they have a, a spot in the World Championships because the, the event is going to be held in Vegas. So then there has to, there's one more team that comes out of the Americas. So that's Canada, Mexico, Brazil, and any other countries that, 
wanted to come in and play. But those are the only countries that put teams in. So you battle it out. Winner goes to the World Championships in Vegas. Canada won. So Canada will have a team. Now, that's not Botcher's team necessarily. Team Botcher, like in the bubble in Calgary, where they had to come in the top six to guarantee a spot for Canada at the Olympic Games. But it doesn't guarantee it's Botcher. It's whoever wins in Saskatoon in a couple of weeks' time. Same here. The winner gets a spot for Canada in the World Championships, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's botcher. You have to win the briar to do that. Gotcha. You know, curling takes no backseat to anybody in in terms of uh, inclusivity, and we're in the World Wheelchair Championships. We're concluded this past week in Beijing. Bring us up to speed on that. That's right, Jim. So last weekend, we did complete the World Wheelchair in the Ice Cube facility in Beijing, which is going to host the Olympics uh, later in 2022. And, of course, it's uh, held in the same building, which is a, it was a test event. Interesting enough, the team from China came out the winner. It is the second time this team has won the wheelchair championship. In the bronze medal side of things, the Russian Curling Federation defeated the USA 7-4. to And uh, that wound up wheelchair curling for this year. And I think everything worked out fine as far as the venue was concerned. So everything is moving full speed ahead towards the Olympics. Kev, you were down in Minnesota for the U.S. Mixed Doubles. And uh, this team's no slouch who won this thing. They both come from very good four-man teams. Uh, How'd it go? Well, the week was fantastic. We were in Eveleth, Minnesota, a home of the world's biggest hockey stick, Jimmy. Oh, uh, really? (laughs) Yeah. And also in the uh, the same parking lot as the uh, Masabi Curling Center, the Curl Masabi Center, uh, is the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame. So it's not a very big community, but a lot of stuff going on. And it's an eight-sheet club. And the ice was fantastic. They brought in ice maker by the name of Sean Olison in the States, who's done just a ton of ice and did a tremendous job. Really good speed, lots of curl, and it really allowed the curlers to make a lot of great shots. Chris Plies and Vicky Persinger, in the end, they won the game against uh, Jamie Sinclair and Rich Runen on just a tremendous last shot. Jamie Sinclair locked a corner freeze top button on one of her own, pointing at one of... Uh, the red stones in the back of Chris Plies and Vicky Persinger. So they actually had a look at it, and Chris wasn't sure that if Vicky hits it absolutely perfect on the nose, would they actually be shot? I said on on TV that it may be a measurement. If this is made perfect, we may be measuring for the Olympic trials. In the end, Vicky threw a, a heater down there, hit it exactly on the nose where she had to, and the middle stone actually sort of squished out of the button area by a few inches. And they won. As good a shot, if she hits it a quarter inch on either side of nose, they lose. But she hit it exactly on the nose, and it was just a, a monster win. Now, keep in mind, for the U.S., uh, that gives them a chance to go to the Netherlands. There's 14 teams in the Netherlands. Top two come out to the Olympic Games. So that win at the Olympic trials did not guarantee the U.S., Chris Plies and Vicky Persinger, a shot in the Olympic Games. But it did get them to the qualifying event which is two out of 14. But the way they're curling, I like their chances. I would like to say one thing I should have mentioned earlier, so I appreciate it, Jimmy, is that um, Jim Carr, Carr Hughes, who does the, uh, the the production for the event, he loves mixed doubles. And this is coming from a guy who, who does no curling, but doesn't, you know, doesn't curl a lot or anything. And uh, it's between 95 and 100 minutes average per game. That's how long it takes to play a game of mixed doubles. It's riveting, lots of rocks in play, very exciting. That final, you couldn't have had a better final as far as exciting. But it's a wrap. You're wrapping up the game in 95 to 100 minutes. 
you know, just over an hour and a half. So easily with TV timeouts and, and anything else you want to put in into the show, you can wrap it in two hours. That's really inviting to be able to sit down and watch a championship and you have an outcome and an, an exciting outcome in a two-hour window. For the future of, of curling, it has to be looked at as being extremely positive. You know, you mentioned you were at the place with the largest hockey stick in the world. This is very true. Okay, you won't believe it, but Halloween, of course, was this past week. And my neighbor, uh, not only does he hand out uh, candy, he hands out hockey sticks to the kids. Yeah, he's got a whole rack of them there. I'm getting there for sure. That never happened in my day, I'll tell you. I just got an apple. What did you dress up as, Jim? A curler? No, I'll tell you what. My mother used to dress me up, and it was horrible. She dressed me up as a girl guide one year, and I took nothing but grief from all my buddies. But this year, I'm going to go as a curler. I'm going to go as you, Hanson, okay? That's what I'm going to do and see if anyone recognizes me. Or next year, I'll do it. I'm too late now. Maybe next year. Yeah, maybe next year. Of course, the big deal, uh, and it'll be all over Sportsnet this weekend, is the event down in Chestermere, uh, the Grand Slam event. It's the Boost National, and you're going to be there, of course, and I'm going to be there, Kev. Uh, I'm going to try and get there. Tell us all about it, Kev. Well, it's a big one, especially for all the Canadian teams. It's the last big event before the Olympic trials. So this is one where the Canadian teams have to really get their stride. It's sort of, if you come in into this event and not play well at all, I'd be in a nervous time if I was a Canadian team, you go in this event and struggle. So you're going to see the Canadian teams, I think, play very, very well here. I said that at the last slam, and I was pretty right, other than this Bruce Mowat guy that keeps just beating everybody. He's obviously going to be a force again, I would think. Um, I can't imagine that they wouldn't be how well they're playing right now. Just uh, the tick zone, the no tick zone that was put into the last slam in Oakville uh, will be in play again, and that's in the eighth end and extra ends. So same things as last time. Um, it'll be a triple knockout event, which I, I think is fantastic. It's win three before you lose three in the event. If you lose your third game, you're out. But as long as you don't lose that third one, you keep trucking along. So I really think it's uh, it's fair. I did want to talk a little bit about tickets. I was talking to Christy, man, who manages the uh, the Grand Slam property along with Jennifer and Jenny. And uh, there are a few tickets left for the weekend. Not many, just a few. And if you do phone and you're sold out, I apologize because this is uh, about 48 hours old, this news. But there were a few tickets left on the weekend. Um, so if you're going to, if you're thinking about sort of going there and just walking in, uh, don't do that. Phone and get your tickets because it could be sold out by the time you get there. Uh, let's talk about the field, though. Uh, remember we talked about the Oakville Slam and, and cross-section around the world. Women's teams, we've got six nations being uh, represented. Canada with eight teams. So half the field is actually out of Canada. A team from Japan, who from South Korea. And, of course, you've got two teams from Sweden, one from Russia, and two from Switzerland. On the men's side, we've actually got 10 teams from Canada. That shows that the Canadian teams are putting a lot of time in this year, trying to get uh, sharp for the trials. Two from Switzerland, one from Sweden, and three Scottish teams. There's another big growth in our sport, Scottish men. Bruce Mowat, of course. Kev, what, did you see anything with his team uh, that separates them from other teams right now? I think it's more of what, what they don't have, and that's a weakness. Their sweeping is extremely strong in, in uh, Hammy and Lammy. On both sides, they can carve both ways. Not every team can do that, and they can carve both ways. Third, strong. Grant's excellent. And then the skipper, um, strategically strong. That's where, you know, the odd time Bruce will still, you know, stumble a little because of his age. But the shot making, they're in the 90s as a team 
almost all the time. They did actually come out against Jacobs in the final of the last slam, and they did not play well, and Jacobs rolled out on an open hit, or they probably lose that game. So they got a little bit of good fortune. But when you're going good, you, you get the good fortune too. So Warren, you're going you're gonna to make a prediction, but you can't pick Mowat. Well, I think it's pretty hard to put your finger in one team. I look back at, uh, at the last event, and the four teams on the men's side that uh, were in the final four, I, I think all of them, which is Moet, Jacobs, Butcher, and Gushu, right out of the gate, you can't discount any of them. And I think, again, as Kevin mentioned, the Moet team right now, when you get right down to the nitty-gritty, probably has a little bit of an edge. And I think that's what happens. With all these top teams, it's going to come right down to just a slight miscue or mistake made somewhere or a little bit of a rule that uh, somebody else didn't get. And I think with those four teams, that's what you're going to say. But I think Moet, again, uh, if you have to have a, a situation of 10 games being played, probably in, in most of those games there, the guys are going to have a little bit of an edge, I think, because of the things Kevin mentioned. In addition, I think uh, a team that kind of went under the wire in uh, the Oakville event was Adin. And uh, those guys are still a very, very good team, one of the best in the world. And I look at them to start to step up their game a bit as well. And I think I wouldn't discount the old guy, Glenn Howard. He has been playing so well in that game last weekend against Tanner Horgan. I mean, Horgan makes just a phenomenal shot. I think it was in the second end to get a deuce. And without that shot, uh, the, the final result of that game could have been flip a coin. So I think he will be there as well. On the women's side, I think it's probably a little more a little more unpredictable. Uh, I look at the final four teams again. Kovalea, Fleury, Jones were, were there. Um, I think, again, Hasselberg and Holman are going to be two teams to watch in this event as well. I think Holman is ready to, to probably burst out also. She's been very, very close, but had, has had things sort of go wrong at the in the end. But uh, I would see that that could be a team that could be right there. Kev, you've got to pick a dark horse then. Warren covered off all those teams. You know, it's funny. If we go back the last couple of years, you've got uh, teams that have done well. You've got Jacobs, who have won three slams in the last couple of years. You've got Botcher, who have won three slams. And you've got Bruce Mowat, who have won three slams. So there hasn't been a lot of room for anybody else. Maddie Dunstone won uh, uh, one event um, in the last couple of years. So, you know, it just those three teams have really owned the Grand Slams in the last three years. And the last event, Botcher got to the semi. Jacobs played Mowat in the final. So to go a dark horse outside of those three, I don't see it. You know, I guess if you're going to call... If you're going to call Gushu a dark horse, you know, I guess that's where I would go as a fourth potential uh, champion this week. But right now, uh, those top three have, have really have really taken control of, of the Grand Slams. We invite everyone to get out to that down in Calgary. It's in uh, Chestermere. There's tickets available. You can get a full event pass, weekend pass, or a single draw ticket uh, by going online to boost.goigniter.com. Uh, and of course, full coverage will be on Sportsnet. Uh, happening around the world. We love that stuff. Great update, boys. And thank you very much to Sports Interaction for sponsoring that. Hot Rock Topics. Uh, last week, Tracy Fleury was asked if there was something in curling she would like uh, changed. Uh, she talked about the burnt rock. Uh, Warren, you're going to bring us up to speed on that. We want to thank Coyote Tractor for Hot Rock Topics. Uh, proud partner of Team Brad Jacobs and the Grand Slam of Curling. Coyote, we dig dirt. Well, it's kind of interesting. We've talked a lot about the burned rock rule, I think, on our shows last year. And following that discussion, I started to think about it. Uh, the fact of, yeah, this seems to be a rule that if there's anything in curling that brings up uh, 
chills down your spine. It's a burn stone, whether it's a moving stone, it's a burn stone, but also burn stationary rocks can be a big issue as well. And if I look back through the perils of time, twice in history that I'm aware of, uh, once was a, a moved stationary stone, the second one is a burned rock, virtually in one case was the determining factor of a world championship. And in 1994, Kevin Cooey virtually lost the Canadian Juniors because of a burned stone and a very unfortunate situation of uh, the rock was uh, hit and his stone was rolling that looked like it would have stopped soon enough, but his second hit it with his foot. And of course, instantly, um, at that point in time, there's no other choice you can make because you didn't know where that rock was going to stop, except it's got to come out of play. But I think where the confusion and the problem comes up with the burnt rock rule, you know, and this is the case of, of many sports, look at golf, where I think there maybe needs to be a set of rules for casual or recreational play or normal play and top-level competitive play. And to really properly deal with a, a burn stone rule, I think you need uh, an official in place who is observing and watching that knows what happened above and beyond the two teams that are on the ice. And otherwise, it's going to end up, I think, in what Tracy suggests is putting the team that, was not, that didn't commit the foul in, a, in an unfortunate position. And so I think with that in mind, maybe what the change should happen, that in normal play, recreational play, if anybody burns a moving stone, it comes off immediately. No questions asked. doesn't matter what it, where, where it's positioned on the ice, whether it's inside the far hog line or not. That way it's simplified, and the, and the manner how it's dealt with is very, very simple. The offending team is the one who has to uh, step up and do it. In the case of having an official on the ice where this thing gets complicated once the stone gets inside the... Uh, the second hog line as far as there's three options there that can be considered depending upon sort of what takes place and what the non-offending team feels they want. And that's, I think, where the situation gets murky. And if I look back at the sort of example she was giving Rachel Holman in the last Olympics, uh, where the other team hit the stone, and what Rachel probably should have been is turned to the official that was sitting there and said, did they hit the rock? Which the official would immediately said, yes, they did. And from that point in time, there's no question. And it's not the non-offending team who's put under the heat. So thinking about that rule uh, over the last week, that's my thoughts on what the solution might be. But I'm interested in hearing what Kevin's got to say about it. Well, from a curler's point of view, there's no question that um, what happened to Rachel at the Olympic Games was very difficult and should not have uh, got into the trouble that she did for just, uh, you know, dealing with the rule as it stands. And, and you're right, it has to be simpler. It cannot put curlers in difficult spots. There has to be an, at the highest levels, at the highest levels, an officiating uh, standpoint where you go to the official, this is what happened, and here's the rule, period, kind of like golf. When you're addressing the ball, did you move the ball? Yes, I did. Well, here's the rules. This is what's happening. This is, and there's no choice. You know, that's, that's kind of the thing with curling. It's a gentleman's sport. Everybody loves that about it. And at the club level, let's keep it that way. It, it, it should be like that. But at the highest levels, playing for a lot of money and, and Olympic games and all these wonderful things that the curlers get to play for, we can't have rules that are, well, what do you think? <laughs> no, 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 nothing like that. What do you think? Well, that's, that's not good because uh, then, of course, everybody has an opinion and, and you can get in all kinds of trouble and appreciate uh, Tracy Fleury. And there, that's probably uh, one of the favorites going into next week as well on the women's side is, is Tracy. But really appreciate her uh, bringing up this, this concern because it's a concern of all curlers and has been for many, many years. Kevin, but if you're playing against a team and uh, they burn a rock, can you trump that but the the official's decision go look at I don't want to I, I don't want to win that way man uh you know don't 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 penalize them right? would you do that and could you do that sure 
but I don't think you should be able to. Let's take it out of the player's hands. That's my opinion. And I know, I, I understand we're going to get some emails on this one because, you know, the game has always been a gentleman's game. Shake hands at the start, shake hands at the end, and figure out the problems yourselves. But as sports grow and there's more on the line and getting to the Olympics or winning Olympic gold means a lot of financial support for your nation, for the teams in your nation, and for yourself and your team. So you're not talking about just, you know, fun here. There's more to it now. And I think it has to be controlled a little bit more from the rule standpoint in big events. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, if I, if I look at golf, I always like to refer back to a number of years ago, Dustin Johnson lost the PGA Championship and it cost him like $1.2 because he grounded his club in what he didn't know was a sand trap. And there was nobody saying, oh, that's okay, you didn't know it was a sand trap. Sorry, that was up to him to know it was a sand trap. And as a result, he got a two-stroke penalty and he lost the t- championship and uh, the $1.2 So... Uh, as Kevin's suggesting, as this game gets the point that there's more and more in the line, there has to be a definite way of dealing with these issues, and it has to be taken out of the hands of the players. But on normal playing in club, bond spiels, where people are mainly doing it for fun, I think it has to be simplified as much as possible, and that would be going back to what it used to be a way long time ago, saying, if you touch the rock, it comes off right now, and you do it, not the opposition. Uh, thanks very much to Coyote. Uh, time for the mailbag. The Inside Curling Mailbag is brought to you by Nestle Boost. Up your nutrition game with Nestle Boost and Boost Convenient. Meal replacement drinks with a taste you're guaranteed to love. Uh, we've received another very thought-provoking post uh, this week from Jim Mason. Jim jumped into a conversation about how teams should qualify for the Canadian Olympic trials, and he's got an interesting comment. He says, I really like the point system in tennis. It should work the same for curling, but the only thing I'd change would be to make it so to be number one, you have to have won a major. To avoid someone becoming number one without even winning big, because they're going to have to win big. Uh, Warren, what do you think? Very interesting comment. I'm not totally familiar with the tennis system, but I do believe that the entire ranking system, the world system, the Canadian team ranking system, which needs to be all coordinated, I think cleaned up, has to do, do things better than it is, I think has to be key in determining who is going to play in some of these events going forward. His comment about having to have to win something significant or probably at least been in the final of it, I think is a very interesting one. As, as I look at one of those teams that has qualified out of uh, Nova Scotia last week in the women's side, the Harrison team has never won. Uh, the skip hasn't won anything of note at all. I don't think has even played in the Scotties. And so there should be some prerequisite, I think, before you end up in, in being able to play off for any of these events that you have to do something besides win a competition and I think it again maybe having won a major event of some sort should uh, possibly be in the criteria what do you think Kevin well yeah how do you do the point system like that that's the tricky part and luckily our sport is full of very high IQ people who can figure this stuff out but you're right um, there's a big difference between being a, a good curler that can't really cross the finish line or one that can that can finish off and win big events and make those big shots in the last couple of events they're different athletes and uh uh, to Jim's point, um, making sure that you've won a major championship uh, is important if, if you know, they're going to represent the country. Now, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of talk here about, uh, boy, you know, we're not, we're not going to take anyone, we're not going to accept anyone unless they're really, really good. Uh, I mean, that's what, that's what makes up sports. That's what, that's what makes it so great, you know, is the underdog. Um, 
That's the feeling I get anyway, Warren. Well, it seems to be this attitude with curling, but there's no other sport really approaches life that way. And I think our life changed so much when the Olympics became part of our menu back in 1998. And then the Grand Slam came into existence. And it's sort of at that point in time, we begin to establish a situation where there's there's two categories in curling. There is the people that are in a high performance end of things, and there's everybody else. But we're trills, we're still trying to combine it all together into this one size fits all. And I don't know, really know of any other sport that does that. So I think we need to come of age, quite frankly. Okay, that was our mailbag segment uh, brought to you by Nestle Boost. Thanks a lot to uh, Nestle Boost. Uh, great to have them on board. Uh, now it's time for our guest. All right, fellas, we, we love our guest. And uh, this kid uh, did an unbelievable job. Tanner Horgan is knocking at the door. In the House is brought to you by Goldline. Goldline curling equipment can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world. Plus, there are retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, Mississauga, and two stores in Ottawa. Goldline can be found at every Grand Slam of curling event and online anytime at goldlinecurling.com. We only let you in, Tanner, if we can hear a knock, okay, You're, uh, from our guest. I need to hear a knock from you. Knock, knock. Like an actual knock? Bang on my desk? There we go. There's someone at the door, fellas. Go figure. Tanner Horgan, the champion of this week's uh, Home Hardware pre-trials. Uh, how are you doing, buddy? Uh, I, I saw your interview after you were, you were overwhelmed and, and you couldn't kind of put it into words. You were saying uh, how exceptional that, that was. Congratulations to you. No doubt the biggest victory of your life. Yeah, without a doubt. I think it's still hard to define now i mean it was certainly our our goal going into the season and we had a lot of preparation going in and not, not gonna lie it feels a little bit of a redemption <laughs> to finally close out a, a big curling canda event uh, under the tv lights and uh, it's something that i haven't done yet so yeah so that feels fantastic to finally close one out yeah well i'd like to hear your thoughts about it at 23 years old and yes it's nice to close it out but how does that feel, I guess, with the growth of yourself personally and your team? Because uh, now all of a sudden you, you go into bigger lights in Saskatoon. And uh, I guess, how, how do you feel about that and your, your potential of that? Yeah, I think there's been some personal growth for me. And I think it's been about a year process, I think. And I think for a while, I'd always, um, you know, practiced hard and and did all the curling stuff well and i think um there's been a big push on this team to ready everyone physically and mentally and i really owe that to my to my current teammates and uh we've done a lot of work over the last eight months to get everyone where we needed to be mentally for that event and um it's such a long event it's a different feel and we're not totally versed at events like these although these guys are they've been to the briar they've been to slams and stuff like that but it was still new for me and I really felt like my teammates supported me really well and allowed me to perform at my best. Well, let's hear your relationship with Jonathan. Um, because I think that I believe I, I agree with you. He's very cerebral. Um, maybe sometimes overthinks some things, but he certainly thinks about things a lot. And that's Jonathan Buke. Um, I guess your relationship and why, why it works so well, because it does seem to me that it works very well. 
Yeah, it, I, I honestly, I'm, I didn't know John uh, quite as well as, as maybe Wes or, or Scott uh, going into the season. Um, Wes, uh, I, I'd known forever. He was actually my, uh, my counselor in, in a curling camp a while ago. But, but yeah, so John is, is just fantastic out there. He's like you say, very, very calm, and there's this very quiet intensity. And I found out early on that we were kind of one of a like or two of a kind um he was just further along with that experience and uh he kind of thinks through things the same way i do and you know there's 15 years between us but it really doesn't feel like there's much of a a gap in personality or anything out there so it's been really easy to gel with john in the house so far so scott mcdonald was the skipper of that team which uh, he departed how did you get hooked up with these guys you're in sudbury they're in kingston how did all that happen yeah, so like I was saying, uh, I've known Wes forever. I got a call from from Wes. They needed to form um, a five person team with with John, and and so I said, well, th- this this would be a good chance for me because I'm starting work, and I knew it would be a lot easier to to tour lots out of Ontario. And I was playing out of Winnipeg at the time, and so the commutes were uh, really challenging, and it all just kind of happened. By, by accident really to start and and so I said well the f- our fifth man can be Jake um, Jake's a real good shooter and he can play a ton and so we thought this would work quite well and so yeah that's kind of how it all started and we we had a phone call together and uh, it was really apparent early just how much work these guys put in behind the scenes I wasn't really ready for that and you know, we, we all know the things we're supposed to do, <laughs> like go to bed on time and just like all the little things like eat right, um, work out, get up before your game's on time, eat at certain times. And these guys really bought into that and they just really stressed the importance of all that. And I was finally ready to uh, to really take all that quite seriously as well and, and enjoy all, putting all those little things to rest or just work on them and so that was really apparent early. So uh, once I found out just how dedicated these guys were, it was an easy decision. Isn't it funny in sports when you've got, you hear about Crosby, he's always the last one off the ice. You hear about your top golfers, always the last one on the range. Yeah, back in the day with Greg Normandy, he was the first one to invent the 10-hour working day, which involved his 18 rounds of golf, but all the fitness and the eating at the right time and all this stuff. Wait a minute. Those are the guys who do the best in sport. <laughs> There's no real fluke to it. Like you know, it, it, the people who put in the most effort tend to reap the most rewards. And uh, so, at age of 23, if you can uh, if you can start down that path and really uh, concentrate and uh, make sure that you follow those, you, you'd think basic, seemingly easy rules. But I'll tell you what: in all my years, there's very few curlers that ate exactly three hours before game time. So that you could have a rest and be the best you can be when you come to the game time, get enough sleep and do all these training things right and have rest at the right time. And there's just not much of that. I want to ask you a little bit about, um, so I'm from a small community. That's where I grew up. And then I had a local team that we did okay. But in order to really excel, I had to move. Um, There's just no choice. And for you, you grew up in in a community without a great deal of top curlers. And then you just mentioned a, a minute ago that you were curling in Winnipeg and, and now you're with an, uh, a team from Southern Ontario. Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, for, for the young people listening to us who are in areas where they're not in a big city, where there's tons of curlers. 
I guess, what, what can you do? What should they do, Tanner, to get to where you are? You're only 23 and you're doing really well. So how can they do it if they're 15 years old listening to our podcast? Uh, I think you know this well too, but I mean, until you do move, until you do get some connections or whether you move for school or, or something like that or work, um, when you're younger, you're kind of tied down, right? You're tied down to where your family lives. You know, there's no OHL in curling where you can have an opportunity to move in your early teens, right? So uh, the important thing, I think, is to get to know your local community really well. It's it's know your ice makers, uh, know the managers, and just be a rink rat. Be in there all the time. Um, just put in as many hours as you can possibly get at the local curling club. and uh, it's got to pay off. Um, no matter what the conditions are, no matter uh, how much you get to play, if you're on the ice all the time and you really work at it, you, you can get quite good at it. Like um, It's easier nowadays too. Like There's so many games on TV. Uh, you can learn so much by just watching all your favorite greats on TV. Like A big one for me was when I was younger, I got into curling because of my, my family, right? My dad took me out and started curling. And then I really got into curling in uh, 2010 when I was watching the Olympics in Vancouver. And of course, uh, we all know who's there. And <laughs> um, who, who was that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another no name. Yeah, right. So uh, that was big for me. And then I saw just kind of how cool the sport was. And I wanted to be like everyone on TV. And then later too, um, when I got a little bit better and, and, I kept working at it and I saw the Jacobs team do so well. Then it became kind of like, well, they're from Sault Ste. Marie and they did it. That's kind of like me, you know? So like I'm from Sudbury, it's not that far down the road. And um, it's like, well, if someone from the Sioux can win Olympic gold, then why can't I, right? And so it becomes a little bit more real then, right? It's someone from your own kind of community. And so that was another kind of step along the way for me. And, um, but yeah, you're right. It is challenging being in a local town. I think, what's been keeping me going is I have a great relationship with our, with our local ice maker, Tom Leonard. And um, he lets me come in and practice all the time and he makes fantastic ice too. You're from a real curling family. I think uh, most people know that Tracy Fleury, now number one in the world on the women's side is your sister and your younger brother, Jacob has played with you in the juniors and he's still with you uh, on the team you're playing on now. So your parents obviously are really into curling. Um, how did all this happen that you've got this great curling family taking the field right now? I mean, there was a little bit of push. Like my dad was, he was not really a competitive curler by any means, but he loved the sport and still loves the sport. He was out there watching us um, in Liverpool and he'll be there in Saskatoon. And He just really uh, stressed hard work early um, and just reps. He, he was always willing to take us to the rink whenever we wanted. That was never never an obstacle so that was super important loved the sport put us all into curling didn't pressure us to keep curling competitively i we all played a bunch of other sports growing up and and just we all kind of just chose this sport and i think it's at its own merit the sport's just so wonderful and not never pressured into it and yeah we all just kind of fell in love with it at different points and just kept playing you know all, all this is fine and dandy uh tanner about you're talking about fitness and hard work and health and and being a rink rat and, and doing all that. But but all the talk this week uh, was about what a great strategist you are. Uh, if I heard it once, I heard it a dozen times uh, through the broadcast that, that for a 23-year-old, you're way ahead of the game with the way you think and the way you do strategize. Where did you get that ability so quick? Well, my, my dad taught me for quite a while, and he, he learned 
from TV too. Like it's not like he was an overly competitive curler. And then later, um, I watched, I watched a lot of TV and just, you know, it's honestly, as you, you learn from, from guys like Russ Howard and Kevin Martin and Mike Harris and whoever's commentating the game, you can pick up a lot and you try and pick the shot that you would call before they say it. And then that's your fact checking somewhat, you know, and you're allowed to disagree too, but um honestly that's what it is and you can get so many more reps in by watching the game and enjoying like watching the game from an analytical perspective and i think that's where a lot of it comes from a lot of people they just kind of play the game and they don't um spend a whole lot of time watching um when they're not on the ice so i think that's probably part of it (laughs) you and i have communicated quite a bit about uh, what you think needs to be happening for the development of younger curlers into this country, people your age, maybe a little younger. We look down to the final four teams in the trials for the men and for the women. Corinne Brown was the only young player there. And, of course, on the men's side, uh, the guys besides you that were on the ice in the final four were, I think, for the most part, the skips, except for Gunnelson, were over 40. What do you think needs to happen with regard to the trials going forward and the whole process of how teams qualify for the trials who should be in it how should all this be happening how do you develop the younger players coming up what's your thoughts it's a very complex question right um there's a few things i can tell you right now that the current system is not ideal it's great considering that there's not a whole lot else going on (laughs) if that if that sounds weird but um the pre-trials is great considering that you know a team like ours does not have a briar every year we do not have a canada cup every year we don't even have slams every year because the slams have gotten so hard to get into um if you're a young canadian team uh, there's just so much depth worldwide now it's no one's fault but but so we don't have those things that the previous generation used to have uh it's just a much more competitive sport now frankly and i think what needs to be done is there needs to be more events like the pre-trials that aren't the pre-trials there's not a whole lot of teams in that pre-trials that would go and get an Olympic medal. Right. And I think that's where a lot of the controversy comes from. And to use like every four years as a developmental opportunity, isn't really developing a whole lot. It needs to be done every year. Um, So what I would like to see done is some sort of um, expanded Canada cup format. Um, It's played every year. And I guess the merit there is that it's a trial run for the trials, right? It's the same kind of format, but why can't we run a tier two side of it? You know, like where we're all playing our, our peers. Um, I played all my peers last week, you know, like, uh, or at least they were all there. Like the Tyler Tardies, the Carson Sturmays, the uh, Jeremy Hardys, the Robert's like, these are all guys I played in juniors. Like we all know who's good and we all know who wants to continue with the sport. There's just needs to be more events for us to play in. Um, so it's some sort of tier two Canada cup where we get to practice that same feel, you know, it's not going to be as big, but we put that pressure on ourselves. Right. And if we can practice every year, putting that same pressure on ourselves, we can eventually when we get to the trials, it's, you know, we've already done our tier two Canada cup each year. Right. And, so I think something like that needs to be done. Beyond that, I mean, there's all kinds of things you could do with, with the play-on system too. But, that, but, but, uh, but more directly correlated would be some sort of expanded Canada Cup format for sure. Do you think the current uh, format to determine a Canadian champion is what you'd like to see going forward? And I think interesting, you're in Northern Ontario. 
these guys you're playing with now are in Ontario. But uh, certainly, in, if you were playing out of Northern Ontario, you're going to have to contend for with Jacobs for a number of years. And so to get to the Canadian Championship is going to be difficult. If you look at some of the teams you mentioned, I think three of them are in Alberta. And those guys on the current system are going to have to get through Botcher and Cooey. Uh is going to be there for quite a while. And so it's going to be a struggle. So those guys could go years before they'd see a Canadian championship. Uh, do you think the current way of doing it is the best approach, or would you like to see that overhauled as well? I think a good like starting point was what they did with the uh, with the bubble last year and having more wildcard teams. I think it should be based on some form of merit, like in, in terms of like points rather than you know winning through a winning through a province. I understand that there's a lot of other subtle issues to do with the Briar and. Certainly, the current system is not ideal for developing talent. Like we see what they're doing over there in Scotland. You know, we had Moat a few years ago. Now we have Ross White, and they just keep coming. <laughs> like they're doing something well over there, and we have our own challenges. You know, we're so spread out and stuff like that. We can't put all the the top people together. And but it's it's something like that needs to be done. Um, we're, we're doing we're making good strides with the next gym program. But but ultimately, I think I think there needs to be more competition for for stuff like us or for people like us to play in. Um, I think that's where you truly get better. I I really do want to talk to you about the university program across Canada because um, as you know it, I see the U of A program every day when I go to my store. There's ten sheets of ice. The two sheets nearest my store, sheets nine and ten, they're like I don't know, they're little little guys, maybe twelve years old or maybe even eleven or something. I'm not sure. Uh, and then sheets seven and eight are a little bit older, maybe like fourteen years old. And then the next two sheets are a little bit older. The next two sheets are the junior varsity team, and then the last two sheets are your big varsity team. And how it works there is that when the little guys get a little older, they move to the next two sheets, and then those two sheets are filled by little guys and the varsity teams become the uh, Kelsey rocks and the Brendan botchers. They move on and, and so on. And, and it's just a revolving group of sheets. <laughs> if you can imagine, like I, you know, I've been in that building now for almost 20 years and I just, I just keep seeing these kids go across the building and you know, Clark Carson Sturme, you just mentioned him, obviously extremely strong. And his sister, uh, Selena Sturme, very strong. And, and, and they're kind of the newest crop to come out of there. I guess I'd like to hear your thoughts on how do we get universities across Canada to kind of take that model where you're going to start the kids at whatever, 12, 13 is the youngest group of that university program. And you just work them through the program until they're 22, 23, 24. And then they can start to curl and stuff. What you're talking about these tier two development program events but now you've got a group of kids if it happened at three or four universities in ontario manitoba saskatchewan alberta be well holy it wouldn't it doesn't take a genius to figure out that we'd be awfully strong in a hurry but how how can we do that tanner or do you even like the idea yeah i mean it's it's a i think it's working well for for that setup right and i think my initial thought is i don't know if it can be duplicated across canada all that easily right um, I think curling is so healthy out there in Alberta and um, you have a cultural aspect there, right? And I don't think universities are going to, they, they, frankly, they don't support curling near as much um, around here. And I guess the main problem I have with that model is you're picking people based on school, right? And so you have to be somewhat gifted at school. So then you got to, then you got to involve all the, all the colleges and, 
I understand that, like the importance of school too. I went through it myself, but it sure would be nice if we had a program that identified talent regardless of everyone's own individual privilege, right? I don't know if it's even done across any sport, but I guess if speaking as an idealist, it'd be nice to have a program that's not so quite not not quite as tied into academics personally, but um, certainly the setup out there is is fantastic. Though I will say, like that's a huge success. The only thing I'm, I'm troubled with is, I guess, I don't know how easy it is to to duplicate across the Canada. That's all. I can't. You know, our my producer, uh, our producer keeps telling me to keep these things to 20 minutes. I can't do this. They're too good, man. They're they're too good. Uh, Tanner, you get back to practicing, uh, and, and congratulations on, on on a great victory this week and and your whole career. And uh, we're going to be watching for you uh, down the road. Take it easy, Tanner. Hey, thanks, Tanner. Thanks, Tanner. Good luck. All right, Kevin, you're on Storytime. One of our new segments this season uh, is brought to you by Meridian Manufacturing. Meridian Manufacturing, your industrial and on-farm storage and handling partners and proud sponsor of the Grand Slam of Curling. Okay, Kev, you're the friendly giant. A couple of chairs here we pulled up in. It's time for story time. <laughs> <laughs> story time, exactly. And you know what? When uh, when you're curling, you're playing a lot of different countries, and there's a lot of things that you don't know about local culture when you're playing in these countries. And we're playing over in Bern, Switzerland in the 90s. And uh, we'd rent a car, and we went to the club to practice. We had just gotten into Switzerland and heading back to the uh, the hotel before we had to curl in the morning at 11 o'clock. And anyway, so fine. So we, we pull up to the hotel and there's one spot in front of the hotel. Fantastic. And I was staying with Jules, actually. Jules and I were rooming together, a coach, Coach Oach. And the rest of the team were all over the hotel. It was all good. So go to bed and wake up in the morning and Jules, he's over by the window, says, Skippy. I go, Jesus, Jules, what, what, what? I think you want to come over to the window. <laughs> so I go, what are you talking about? Anyway, so I walk across the room, look out. There's a, a great big farmer's market out front of the hotel. There's no cars. Would you, I said, Jules, didn't, isn't this where we parked the car? He said, that's why I brought you over the window, Skippy. We got trouble. And this is, we parked at like 11 o'clock at night. This is about seven o'clock in the morning. Where did the cars all go? What, what happened? Anyway, so we go down to the front desk and, and uh, we parked our car out front. And of course, the person at the desk uh, is kind of looking funny at us. And well, everybody knows that the farmer's market starts at 6 a.m. on Thursdays. Everybody knows we're from Canada. We don't know. No, but it's common knowledge. Uh, so anyway, you, your car would have got towed away. I said, well, where does it get towed? Well, the police tow it. Well, how do... Well, <laughs> and all of our curling stuff's in the trunk. And we play at 11 o'clock. So uh, how are we going to find the car? Well, you're going to have to go to the police station. That's where you're going to have to go. Well, where's the police station? Well, it's about uh, six or eight blocks. And he pointed us in the right direction. So go get the team. And now we're, we're hustling to the police station walk into the station and we were parked out front and of, of this certain hotel and well yeah you can't park there past 6 a.m well I, we <laughs> we know that now but we didn't know such a thing that we did. we're from canada it's our first day here and we have to curl at 11 o'clock so how where's the the compound where where'd you haul the car to well that's not how it works here we actually all we do is we back up and we haul it someplace else in the city 
and we park it in, in a place that's legal parking. And then you pay your fine, and then we give you the address where to find the car. <laughs> so, oh, 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 that's oh, a no. great idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we don't, this, is, this is before you had cell phones where you put in the address and it'll lead you there. <laughs> we, okay, so, so we pay our, I think it was 200, uh, 200 uh, Swiss francs or 250 Swiss francs to get the car. I get the address. We haven't got the car. So they give us an address at some street somewhere <laughs> no no what do we do so he asked the policeman can you take us there well no that you go find your car you're, you're the one who broke the law and so, so so we had to get a cab we actually get two cabs because of course there's too many of us and so two cabs running through town to find this car on a street in the middle of nowhere and we got to the car about 11 o'clock and uh, of course we, we missed our first two ends we we show up at the rink and we're two down without because those are the rules every 10 minutes that you're late you, you get a point and you lose the hammers so, oh my god but anyway anyway really really fun and uh and that's just a common knowledge ticket is what we've always called it it was common knowledge just not for us that's funny man that's funny. you know in the same trip jimmy same trip we pull up to the stoplight um, there are police on the sidewalk and we're waving at them, being real friendly and stuff at the red light. And I look the, I look both ways, nobody coming. And I turn her right and the policeman puts his arms up. Stop. I go, well, of course I stop. I get out of the car, go over shake his hand. I said, well, yeah, we're from Canada. And he said, I knew you're from somewhere. You can't turn right on a red <laughs> in Switzerland. <laughs> same trip, same trip. I go, Oh, I'm learning all kinds of stuff. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, very good, boys. Uh, another great show in the books. Uh, thank you a lot. <laughs> thank you to everyone. Uh, and thank you to Tanner, our guest. Uh, he's got lots to say. He's going to be certainly the future of this game. Um, Inside Curling would like to reach out to curling clubs all over the world uh, and invite you to contact us. And uh, we'll set up a Zoom call. We've done a, we've done a few of these. Uh, and we'd love to do it again with your club. Let us know. Insidecurling at gmail.com. We'd also like to extend a big thank you to Rod and his company, In-House Strategy. Rod Paulson's been doing all our social media stuff, and, and he, he's just terrific. And uh, we, we want to thank him for all the great posts uh, that he puts up. Uh, off this week uh, to Chestermere, uh, Alberta. Kevin, uh, the Boost National is there at the rec center in Chestermere. Uh, there's some tickets left, and we'd like to love to see you there. You can get a full event pass, weekend pass, or a single draw ticket by going online to boost.goigniter.com. And again, full coverage will be on Sportsnet starting November 4th. And uh, don't forget, bring proof of vaccination if you want to get into the building. Fellas, you did well. That was a lot of work this week. Uh, Kev, I don't know, you get oh no time off. Warren and I get to watch, watch the event this week. So uh, good luck, uh, everyone, and, uh, and another great uh, week of curling coming up. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Curling. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. Thanks, Jim.